0: This morning, we have a wonderful opportunity because we have back with us Josh Hoosman. Yeah. Josh was the young adult pastor here and left three and a half years ago to go back to Indiana because he wanted to get back to Winters. <laughs> Not really. Uh, he went back because God called him to go back to Indianapolis and plant a church. And he did that, and God has blessed that in an amazing way. Three and a half years later, it's a thriving church of over 500 people. And yes, God has done a wonderful thing. So he'll tell a little bit more about the church and what's happening there, but welcome back, Josh Husman. Stop Hey? He always fails to mention this, Peter Tory sat on our initial board as a church plant and kept us from doing anything illegal. So be sure and thank Peter Torrey for doing a great job of leading a, a church plant. Well, it's good to be back with you guys. It's, it's been a little while. You know, my wife, Lisa, is going to be here this morning as well. We now have three kids We've got Jake, who's six, Jenna, who's three, and we have a six-month-old baby named Jet. Um, and it's been an exciting journey. Many of you are somewhat familiar with our story. When we left here a number of years ago, moved across the country, we were a month into church planting when we realized our unborn son, Jackson, our second son, had a genetic disorder, and he ended up passing after two weeks after birth. And if you could just imagine being across the country and experiencing something like that, it was the most devastating thing we had ever experienced in our lives. And I want to tell you, one of the worst things that could ever happen to us ended up being one of the most incredible things for Mercy Road Church. And God has a way of using some of our brokenness to change the world, and that's at the heart of what we're going to talk about this morning. But today... This morning, there were hundreds of people worshiping together, studying God's word, many of them from unchurched backgrounds, broken people who have come back to church or found faith in Jesus for the first time on the north side of Indianapolis. And we're excited to share with you that we purchased our first long-term facility back in February. Um, It's been an incredible experience that within three and a half years, we saw God provide enough to purchase a $2 million property and be able to have a first long-term facility. Our vision over the rest of our lifetime is to plant as many churches and campuses within the state of Indiana before we die. We can grow up to 2,000 people at this particular facility, and we are planting our first Transformation Ministries church out of Mercy Road this coming year in 2016 with Hope City Church and Justin and Tricia Davis. So... Every time you guys give to Purpose Church, you don't realize this, but you are making a wake of spiritual impact throughout the state of Indiana. And I want to personally come and thank you so much for doing that. It's incredible to be a part of a church like this. And the truth, I love Glenn, man. He is just hilarious, isn't he? I mean, he is one of the greatest leaders I have ever experienced, his humility of leading a large church like this. It's why so many young people want to come and work for a guy like that. And I've been privileged to pattern a lot of ministry off of him, uh, just not uh, his hairstyle (laughs) or choice of dress, but for the most part, pattern a lot of things after him. And one of the things he often talks about is that today, in American Christianity, today is the good old days. That the kingdom of God is expanding around the world rapidly, even when we don't see it or realize it. And one of the things that I imagine you would agree with over the last several decades, not only the political culture, but the spiritual culture in our society has changed. It is often not easy to live out your faith as a Christian, and things that used to be accepted within our society are now ostracized. And some of us view that as the sky is falling within the American church, and certainly statistics demonstrate that there are fewer people attending churches today. And yet we've witnessed in the state of Indiana the exact opposite of that, just as you would continue to experience Here, the truth is, throughout Christian history, the church has expanded exponentially the most within times when it was least accepted within its society. I don't know if you know that. Within the first few hundred years, Christianity expanded rapidly, and within the first couple of hundred years, you could be burned at the stake, killed for just believing and testifying to your belief in Jesus. And when everyone is fleeing in the second century, the city of Rome because of the plague that has occurred there, Christians are running into the city to minister to people because we do not fear death. And it was because of that that Christianity continued to expand rapidly because they lived out of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. When others ran away, they ran towards the hurt and the brokenness and the sickness and illness and the pain and the sin of the world. Because we believe we serve a God who's big enough to do that. And it was only after Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire around 325 AD when Constantine was emperor and they had the Council of Nicaea that Christianity began to wane, at least in its exponential growth that it witnessed in the first few hundred years. And yet, historically, throughout American context, we have seen periods of rapid expansion. And so, I want to tell you that while society may have changed in the last few decades, that does not mean the spiritual sky is falling. The God that we serve is incredible, is huge, is loving, is merciful, is just. And He is with us right now, even in the brokenness, in the broken relationships. In the loneliness and the pain and the suffering, I shared a little of mine, and i got to imagine you've experienced some as well. And so that's at the heart of what I want to discuss together. So if you have a Bible, power it on to Mark chapter five beginning in verse 1. As you're doing that, we're those who have free hands. We put your hands together. Welcome those who are joining us live online through the power of the internet and the different campuses. We are glad that you are here, and we hope you connect with God through this passage. Now, leave it to Glenn. When I come in here, I'm a part of the sermon series he's done and give me a particular topic to preach on. I wanted to preach on puppies this morning, and he just wasn't happening it, so Glenn doesn't believe your puppies will be in heaven, so please pray for Glenn. But I, I thought that Mark chapter 5 would be a great place to deal with the issue of, is Jesus really God? And we could have an entire semester's worth of lessons on this, and I'm just going to touch on what Mark chapter 5 says. And then tonight, at Purpose Church Claremont. I'm going to be sharing part two of the second half of the book of Mark chapter five. Don't miss it. This morning's message is okay. Tonight's is phenomenal. You don't want to miss it at uh, Purpose Church Claremont. Here we go. Get your Bibles ready. You ready to study God's word together this morning, Pomona? Oh man, there was three people over here. I'm glad you came this morning. You guys ready to study God's word together? Okay, here we go. Mark chapter five, beginning in verse one. They the disciples went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now remember, Jesus has taught them and he has calmed the storm on the sea and they get across the storm. They they have seen God through Jesus do miraculous things. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Can you picture this? This man, lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. Like the incredible Hulk, baby, he just busts out of those things. The passage goes on to say, no one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran, he ran to him and fell on his knees in front of him. And then he shouted at the top of his voice. I want you to underline, circle this, highlight this on your iPad. It says this, what do you want with me? It gets creepier if I say it like that. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And this gets really freaky. My name is Legion. Oh, that's creepy. If somebody says that to you, you may be a stronger Christian than me. I am running the other way, man. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now, Jesus will. You know the story. He throws the evil spirits into some swine, and they go running off of a cliff. And there's a whole lot of things we could teach on that, but I don't want to focus on the first 10 verses. Will you bow your heads and pray with me as we dive into this passage? Lord, we pause for a moment as some of us as followers of you, some of us as new Christians, some of us as people searching out and trying to decide what we believe about you, Jesus, others of us that didn't even want to be here this morning, and yet we find ourselves sitting here listening to this message, and God, I pray that my small-minded, arrogant words would be lost and that your powerful word from your spirit would speak to us. And so we take a moment as a church and we acknowledge the presence of your Holy Spirit in this room with us right now. God, speak to us through these words in Scripture. We surrender this passage to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's family said, amen. Uh, anybody in here like apple cobbler? Mm, come on now. The, the Christians in the room, were glad that you raised your hand. Love me some apple cobbler, man. Apple pie does not matter, especially if it's hot and it's sugary and you put a little vanilla ice cream on the side. Come on now. That's delicious. My wife, when I turned 30 years old, I was still living in Southern California at the time, and she planned this surprise birthday party in West Los Angeles. We went to one of those professional murder mystery parties. You ever done one of those? And they have like real actors who come out to it. Glenn and Kimberly were actually at this thing with us. We had a bunch of family and friends with us. And I'll never forget. By the way, you, if you solve it, you like win a prize and everything. I solved it within 10 minutes, man. You can rub that in Glenn's nose just a little bit because he did not win. He was not. Uh, but anyway. Anyway. I kind of cheated. I can share that with you later. But what happened as the meal progressed, they brought out, you know, the appetizers and then the main course. And eventually they bring out the dessert. And it was some apple cobbler. And it was looking good. And I was excited for it. I took one humongous bite. And you ever take a bite of something and you know something is wrong? Like eating a bowl of Lucky Charms with no marshmallows. There's something inhumane about that. And I took a bite. I instantly knew something. My only reaction was a gag reflux, and I just blew right onto my plate. felt a little embarrassed until I saw every single person around the table do the exact same thing. Except for one person. My best friend, Brian Cook. We've been friends since we were in preschool, man. And I look over at him. Everyone else is sick to their stomach. And I look at him. I'm like, he's just shoveling it into his mouth. It's like, Brian, dude, something's wrong. It tastes, it's like super salty. It it's tastes like a horse lick. Don't ask me why I know what a horse lick tastes like, but that's what it tastes like. He's like, no, it doesn't. Mm, it's delicious. Like, no, it's disgusting. No, it's not. It's delicious. You, you don't know. He finished that one so fast, he ate my apple cobbler. He ate that one so fast, he ate about five apple cobblers. Until the owner of the establishment came out, he stops everything that's going on, and he says, hey, I just want to let you know we just fired the cook. It's like, yeah, he accidentally switched the sugar with the salt. I looked at Brian. He'd just eaten about 17 pounds of salt. And he spent some time in the bathroom after that. I don't need to get into details, but... I really believe, like, Brian at some point knew there was something wrong with it, and he just didn't want to admit it. I I know it's the case, and he was so prideful about it in front of his friends and stuff, he didn't want to admit that he was wrong. And the truth was, he felt sick the rest of the night. He went through this miserable experience just because his pride got in the way just a little bit. You been there? I want to tell you, as a Christian, I spent too much time there afraid to admit the things I'm actually enduring and the things that are keeping me from genuinely knowing God. I believe in our society today, the heresy that we are going to talk about causes misery in our lives and we don't even know it. And when we become aware of it, we are too prideful to even admit it. Because we believe in God, we believe in Jesus, but we think the significance of him being God is really not all that important to our faith. And I want to tell you, it's incredibly important. And it's because of our lack of acknowledgement of that that many of us experience misery in our life because we are too prideful to turn to the one who can do something about it. The title of this morning's message is called The God Man. That's in- important. The scholar Anselm was the first to use that term, and I'll discuss him later. The God man is not hindered by this world, and neither should you be. The God man, if you're taking notes, is not hindered by this world, and neither should you be. We're going to ask a few questions. And the first question I want to ask you, not just the person sitting next to you, is are you crying out? Let's, let's read the verses again. It begins in verse four or one. It talks about they, they come across the lake to this place place's garrisons, and scholars debate the, where that city is, but we know it's on the other side of the sea. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one combined him anymore, not even with a chain. Look down to verse five with me. Here's a guy that's literally living in the cemetery, chained up like a rabid dog. And verse 5 says this about this man. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now look, this passage has a lot to do with demon possession. I believe that evil is alive and well today, that Satan is at work in our society, that you cannot believe in scripture and not believe that demonic forces are at work, But I want to look at a broader context and reading of this passage beyond this. We fail to acknowledge the spiritual reality in which we find ourselves. We undermine the spiritual battle that we are experiencing. Robert A. Gulick, uh, you don't need to know who that is, but I love that last name. Gulick, not Goulet. These verses, he says, describe the futility of all attempts to constrain the man's wildness. Even chains and shackles could not hold him. this display of uncontrollable strength may reflect his possession by legion, demons. In any case, these verses describe a man who no one could tame. Ladies, you know a man that no one can tame? Got any elbows thrown in the room? Probably about 99% of the men in the room? We have experienced that. We also have friends and family in our lives that... You don't have to be living in the cemetery around decomposing remains, but you know what it's like to be around spiritual deadness. You know what it's like to be around sickness and illness and death. You know what it's like to be around brokenness and drugs and alcohol-related issues. You know what it's like to be around broken relationships and marriages and ostracized family members and around children who we believer making terrible decisions and won't listen to anything that we say. You know what it's like to be ostracized and set apart just as this man. Could you imagine? This guy, he is day and night, verse 5 said, he is crying out. Crying out because he is in so much pain and suffering. And we, we quickly pass over that and forget that this guy is like chained in a cemetery around tombs all day long and night. Crying out Close enough to the city, somebody had to hear him. Like, obviously, they knew this guy's out there screaming out day and night, and everybody's scared to do anything about it. can't imagine somebody more ostracized during that particular uh, city's time in that society. In fact, it says that he is crying out, and what? Cutting himself. Now, you may not be familiar with this, but cutting is still a, a deep concern within our culture today. And many young people suffer with loneliness or depressive issues, and they turn to mutilation of their bodies and cutting themselves. Now, I don't believe that, that was always due to demon possession, although I think evil is real. And the temptation, the demonic forces are real. But the point I would like to make is that the ostracizing within our society is not too different from what it was back then, that there are people in our society that feel so broken, so alone that they choose to mutilate their own flesh and body. And I find it very interesting in this passage that Jesus goes out of his way to stop in this city to go not to just the good people, but to the bad person. Or better yet, the suffering person. Living in the cemetery and chained up. And when everybody else is running away from him in fear, he's walking towards him. It signifies the type of Messiah that we serve together. Are you crying out? Maybe you have suffering and pain in your life and you don't know where to turn to. Imagine this guy crying out and believes no one is going to help him. And then Jesus shows up. And, and this is the type of God that we serve. I love the, the, the last half of this passage. It's incredible. The second question I want you to ask this morning is, when was the last time you fell to your knees? Maybe physically, but also spiritually. Read the verses with me again, beginning in verse 6 to 8. He goes on to describe, Mark does, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. And then verse 8, for he had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. His only response when he sees Jesus, is to run towards him, fall down on his knees, and cry out to him. And what did he say there in verse 7? He referred to him as what? Son of the Most High God. Why did he use that term? You see, throughout the Gospels, no one can deny that in the Gospel of Mark and other places, it refers to Jesus as the Son of God, Son of the Most High God in particular, It also, in Matthew, refers to him as the Son of Man, a reference to Daniel 7, verse 13, about the Messiah who was to come. And no one would deny that throughout the Gospels that it's referring to Jesus as God, particularly in the Gospel of John. It says that Jesus is God repeatedly, and he takes on titles that only God takes on. I believe biblically you could not deny that is Jesus really God. There is no doubt about it. What I'm about to share with you really came from a friend of mine named David Rothenberg. Over the last year, he is a—he claims he's agnostic. He's really a deist, David, if you're watching online. He's been coming to our services for over a year, every single week. He's not a Christian. And we've been meeting pretty regularly. He calls it his small group. It's just the two of us. And he's been asking questions like this. Why is it important that Jesus was God. Why couldn't he have just been a good guy? Right? Like, why couldn't he just be like Frank, who was like a good person? Why is it significant that Jesus was God? Many of us have maybe asked that question. A famous person throughout history, his name was Arius in the early church, believed that. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't believe that he was God. Got a picture of his, the baptism that that he would uh, profess. And in particular, I want to tell you that that was a heresy that was discounted at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., not because Dan Brown wrote a novel about it, but because it actually every Christian who was the early witnesses and wrote it, wrote it down referred to Jesus as God. And so you cannot believe the Bible and not believe it. The debate they had in the early church was Jesus homoousia, homoousia. You're like, what does that mean? Anybody ever hear the term before? It doesn't make an iota of a difference. Anybody at this service? Hey, okay, maybe like okay, four people. That's great, fantastic. The the iota is the Greek letter I, and it comes from three twenty five A.D. at the Council of Nicaea, where they debated was he of the same substance of God, homoousia or homoiousia. The difference was one iota. And they declared very clearly that he was of the same substance of God. Why? Well, again, we could give an entire uh, semester's worth of lessons. I want to give you just three here this morning. If you were taking notes or watching this online, follow with us. The first one is this. Jesus said he was God. So it's so like C.S. Lewis was famous for saying, if Jesus said he was God, either he was a liar, a lunatic, or he was actually Lord. That you can't claim that you are God incarnate and not be either actually God or crazy. Like, look, I've done ministry on the streets and had plenty of people tell me that they were God. And I'm like, you need to go to a doctor. Like immediately. And so you can't believe he was a good teacher. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or actually Lord, because he said he was God. Number two, Jesus was without sin. No other human being throughout human history has ever been without sin that was only able to be accomplished because he was god incarnate and while we can live free from sin at times in our lives it 's not our willpower that 's accomplishing that is the spirit of God within our body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it is his power and strength, not ours. And the, the Spirit wasn't given at that point, and so Jesus claimed that he was actually God, and he lived it out by demonstrating a perfect human life without sin. Now, my, my buddy David, he doesn't really care about that because he's not bought into the Bible yet. And I could give him, and I have, and a number of other opportunities to understand it, and I think he be, has begun to see that. But the third one is very important, and you're like, I've been a Christian a long time. I know this, Josh, but... uh, As human beings, we cannot justify ourselves before God, that you may be a good person. I hope that I'm a better person today than I was 15 years ago. Some of you say, well, that wasn't hard. But I want to tell you that being a good person when we get to heaven won't mean a whole lot other than when God, his spirit, used our lives to advance his kingdom. There are certainly repercussions of the decisions we make now. You can make an impact that goes beyond just this period of time, but lasts eternally. But justification in front of a perfect God does not occur because of our good works. The Bishop of Canterbury, an ancient scholar named Anselm, wrote Why did God become man? And his thought was, because God is fair and just, he can't just let people off without a price, that there was a price to be paid. That would be cheap grace to just overlook it. There was a price that had to be paid. Since God is fair and just, redemption was needed for the human rebellion. But God is also full of compassion, so he couldn't and wouldn't just leave us alone. We may be screaming out day and night, and no one is listening or responding, but he is And he will. He walked towards the man in chains, not away. You see, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, we celebrate at Christmas time that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I was once in London, England, at a place called Speaker's Corner, where people literally get up on soapboxes and espouse about their own ideologies or politics or faith. And there were these particular two well-spoken Muslim men who talked about why could I believe in a God who became a little baby boy who dirtied his diapers and couldn't take care of himself. And I want to tell you this morning that the reason that is so incredibly important, the why I believe Christianity so strongly... Because Jesus, who was Emmanuel, God with us, took on flesh and bones because while everyone else in society looks at the ostracized and the brokenness and the temptation and the wrongdoing in our lives and turns our back on us, God runs towards us. When Adam and Eve rebelled against him, when the early fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the people of Israel eventually rebelled against him, Throughout the times of the prophets, when we did not listen to him, he never gave up on pursuing his creation. He sent his only son, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, so that he could demonstrate he is just not the holy God. He is a loving, merciful, and compassionate God who became incarnate, and he saw the man in chains, and he didn't go, hey, I got a lot of ministry to do. This is important. Maybe I'll come back to you. He walked towards him. And the only response of this man was to witness the authority of Jesus, Son of God Most High. He falls down on his knees, and he begs for him to free him. Don't torture me, God. I, 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 I can't do anything in your presence. And because of his admission of who he is, in that moment, he will be freed. And he will go back to the village, and he will tell everybody in that city about Jesus, and people will come to faith because of it. That is the good God that we serve, all-powerful, almighty, God incarnate. When you fall on your knees, he embraces your brokenness and heals you. I, I don't know about you, but that is good news to a 16-year-old who keeps cutting themselves because they believe nobody cares about them. He cares about you. That is good news that when you're going through broken relationships and you feel like nobody cares about the pain that you're witnessing, he cares about it. It's good news when you are alone in this life and you feel like nobody's going to be there for you. He is, he cares, and he wants to use the Christians of the world to embrace you when you are hurting and down. That's the God that we serve that walks towards it, not away. It takes us admitting it in verses 9 to 10. That's what this guy does. My name is Legion. He begged Jesus again and again to send them out of the area. And it happened and it occurred. The, this is, some of us are very religious. Some of us believe in a higher power. But there is only one being that was of the same substance of God. And he loved you enough. He became Emmanuel, God with us, and gave his life for you. He is a just but compassionate father who loves you? So, the question remains for you and for me why are we still fighting Him? Why are we so persistent when we know we have deep things within the recesses of our soul that are preventing us from living out God's great works in this lifetime and we're too prideful to admit it? And we're just like, no, no, it's not. This relationship isn't bad. No, it's good. I love it. It's good. Give me some more. Doesn't hurt me. When other people are speaking into our lives, we don't listen. And look, I've been there. I'm still there sometimes in my pride in my life. Rather than just admitting it, turning to him, why are we so persistent in a post-Christian society and culture where many of us see that agnosticism is more culturally acceptable in our universities and cities, when our moral compass is more in line with reality TV than God's best, when our mental health is worse than ever and we're killing masses of people simply for their skin color, when evil is thriving and the enemy is strong and it's easy from a Christian perspective to blame our own issues, our broken families, the drug problems, the anger, the hatred, the lust of the eyes and the flesh, Even some of us, we blame our families and our friends and our temptation and and Satan himself. Some of us even blame God. Rather than simply allowing the pride to be diminished, that even this demon-possessed man was able to admit the truth of his condition before him. And the question is, will you, will I do the same? Because the Almighty... God, creator of the heaven and the earth and everything in it. Pursued you, and pursued you, and pursued you, and pursued you. And when you feel all alone, and broken, and spiritually dead in your lives, this man was chained up, he walked towards him, he healed him, he went on to live out the rest of his life doing ministry for him. That could be you, that continues to hopefully be the life that I pursue, and the life I lead. Though I am no good without the spirit of God in my life, because of the redemption of Jesus Christ, who was son of the God most high, God incarnate, not just some good dude, but eternal God. And he will pursue you and pursue you and pursue you. Why don't we give up the pride and God just admit our condition? Will you bow your heads with me? God, we often fear a scary word like repentance. We think of terrible things. We've had it lorded over us, people telling us all the bad stuff in our lives. Jesus always seemed to walk towards the bad people, not away from them. And so what if we just admitted our condition before you? We admitted what was really going on in our lives? For those of us who maybe have been Christians for a really long time, and we've allowed certain things to creep into our life that we wouldn't tell a soul. And you know it. You know it. And repentance isn't a scary word. It's a beautiful word that we get to do. And so we're going to do as Scripture teaches, and we're going to repent of those things in our lives. We're going to do a 180. We're going to surrender them to you. Maybe it's to be a Christian for the very first time, to believe that God incarnate loved you enough, he gave his life for you. Or maybe it's you as a Christian that's been a Christian for decades and simply just needs to admit some of the pride that has come into your life. I invite you to pray silently as I pray this out loud. God, thank you. Thank you that we can admit your condition and you love us still. And so we come to you and we just want to confess to you the things in our lives that are preventing us from fully knowing you. If that's you here in the room, rather than living in guilt or anger or hatred, let's just turn to him like this man who dropped down on his knees. And maybe you just need to do that, actually physically do that at this service this morning. I invite you to do that and I just want you to pray this silently as I pray it out loud. God, We just confess that we are not God, that only you are, that you loved us enough that you pursued us, Jesus. You gave your life for us, and you demonstrated that you are a compassionate God that walks towards our pain, our suffering, our brokenness, even our sin. And so then pray this, God, I confess that I need you. Forgive me for my wrongdoing. Some of you, you know what that is right now. Just Not out loud. I just want you to take 30 seconds. Confess it to him. You you need to get it off your chest. It's not for him. It's for you. Confess it to him. He loves you. He embraces you still. God, we, we confess it. I confess the pride still prevents me from really seeing your best in my life. Not listening to others. and I can get angry. I can get jealous. I can I can commit sins that I just thought I was past. And so we ask for your forgiveness. We thank you for it. And then some of us, we come to you right now, whether for the first time, or we just need to get our life on track. We want to commit our lives to you, to your service. We are better with you, not apart. And so we pray this silently. Just do, don't be embarrassed or ashamed. I'm not going to do you, make you do anything crazy. Just pray this to give your life to Jesus Christ. He is Lord and King of all. Pray this. God, I confess that I need you. And on this moment... Right here, October 18th, 2015, I surrender my life to you fully, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High God. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you're not fearful or scared of me, but that you embrace me. I give you my entire life. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's family said, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you for letting us do this this morning. Thank you for being real. If you prayed to have life change or to receive Jesus, do not be embarrassed about that. Be proud about that. Let, let somebody know. Talk to your friend that brought you here today. Write it on a connect card so that we can follow up with you. But please stay where you're at, and I'm going to pass it off to Jay.